being part of a community that's involved with doing something greater than ourselves is an insurance plan against overwhelm, depression, whatever word one wants to use. There are a lot of jobs out there, but our young people don't know about them. So we've built a whole online platform to help educate guidance departments. And so we grew our organization based on, the, on Dr. King's Each One Teach One. Yes. So if you learn something or if you're exposed to something, you pass that along. Testing, testing. Hey, I'm Ian. And I'm Sophia. And welcome to Talking with Green Teachers. This is the Environmental Education Podcast, where we discuss recent developments, big ideas, and creative approaches to teaching green. In this episode... Every place I travel, people have a, the equivalent of a stone soup story, which is that, you know, he gets makes a feast for the village by everyone just pitching in something. And so I think that that's the message of our time, is that everyone needs to pitch in. It's not up to anyone. We sit back and look and wait for someone to do it, and it's not going to happen. So we really believe that using the innate curiosity The waves crash on the shore as the stone soup traveler wanders along the beach, pondering her next move. For those called to this lifestyle of wandering and island hopping, there are lots of pensive moments with nature. Time to process what has come to pass and what may lie ahead. Marianne Larnett is one such stone soup traveler, and she has channeled the spirit of this classic story in founding the Stone Soup Leadership Institute. Her latest book, Stone Soup for a Sustainable World, features 100 life-changing stories of young heroes. Marianne joined Ian for an in-depth discussion about grounding hope in reality, connecting youths to green jobs, and channeling the innovations of everyday heroes. Looking back over, say, the past century, the past hundred years, there's probably always been reason to say it's really tough to be a young person in today's world. And it could be for various reasons, such as the Great Depression, World War II, the Cold War, various environmental concerns like acid rain, DDT, ozone depletion, etc. What's different about the challenges now? Thank you for asking that. It's a big question. Yeah, big one I to start off with. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and fortunately, I've been blessed to um, have uh, met many people who've been involved for many years in um, social change, the environment, and um, global awareness of those issues. And, um, you know, there's a lot that's the same, and then there's an urgency of now. Um, one of our young people uh, from Nepal, as a matter of fact, she just posted uh, Severin Suzuki's um, video from the first Earth Day at, um, in Rio mm -hmm. and, and the, the United Nations Summit. The, the video is called The Girl Who Silenced the World. And she was 13. Severin was 13 at the time. Right. And so, so when I 
I saw that Shreya, who's 23 in Nepal, and she's one of the real champions for COP26 and, and uh, for the young people's participation. I sent her a message. I said, did you know Severin's in the same book as you? And she goes, oh my goodness, no. And so <laughs> I really was important for me in this book was to acknowledge people like Severin or Alex Lors, who was the youngest person that was part of Al Gore's training when he was 13. Um, there's a lot of young people that have been, you know, carrying the, the torch. Um, John Lewis is in the book and he, uh, regarding when he was 25 and helped to found SNCC and was the youngest person that spoke at the March on Washington. Um, so, and you know, the story of Gandhi's grandson talks about when he was 12 and he was getting into trouble and his parents sent him to live with his grandfather and, you know, to listen <laughs> to him tell the story of what it was like to have his grandfather teach him a lesson. So a pretty good teacher. Well, he was a tough teacher. I bet he was a tough teacher. Very, you know, he, I think if you are raised with a lot of discipline, then you become a disciplined teacher. I think that's a, it's a very, um, I've, be, I've come to, as a teacher myself, I've come to uh, appreciate the fact that, you know, my parents were very strict with me and I'm the oldest of 10. So uh, it came in handy to be very disciplined. So he was disciplined. But I think that why it's so important right now to have the young people's voices be heard is that it's their future. And we are really um, not being responsible about our choices and our decisions and um, thinking as though there's unlimited resources. And I think that not enough people take it seriously about the reality of the world that we're leaving to these young people. So my hat's off to them. And, you know, we listen to them often and carefully. And I think that that's the goal is to have more people listening to them because the urgency of now, which Dr. King talked about, is really the, the key at this time. And I think scale is such a big part of it because when you look at the major challenges of history, and there certainly have been existential challenges where it felt like the end of the world, certainly in certain areas, it felt that way. But the scale is just so much greater when we're talking about climate disruption, when we're talking about acidification of the oceans, plastic pollution. Nobody gets off scot-free, certainly as, as of course we know, many, many people are affected much more negatively than others, but everybody is affected. And that's something that I've talked about with other people who've said, well, you know, it's never been a cakewalk. It's like, but this is different because the scale is just something that we haven't seen before. Well, um, you know, one of my significant memories was working in the Philippines in um, 87. And I was so inspired by people power and how they overthrew Marcos and dictatorship um, with no bloodshed. And so I lived there for a year. And uh, it was the 15 and 16 year olds that really were the ones that were championing this peaceful revolution. And so I was so inspired, I stayed for a year. 
And I started to see the beginnings of, you know, the impact of, of um, climate change then, because uh, for economic reasons, um, the Japanese were giving chainsaws to the local Filipinos who were really impoverished and needed income. And they said, you know, if you clear cut this area, I will, we will give you a chainsaw for free. And so it looked like a great idea at the time. And you know, some of the places where they clear cut, those islands are no more after the tsunami. Of course. So I think that the, the implications of some of the decisions that we've made have significantly affected the global south particularly. And I think most people are unaware of that. I, I think we see the effects of that through environmental refugees. I know you know, living in Hawaii for eight years and working with the community and you see the phenomenal homelessness there. Um, and it's really about environmental refugees from all of the Micronesia, Polynesian islands. And it's, mm. you know, people aren't really talking about it, but it's a huge issue that we're facing all over the world. And so I think that when you're in a, you know, over 50% of the book, the stories in the book are from other countries, because I think in general, uh, Northern American U.S. children are less aware of what's going on in the rest of the world because of the corporate media takeover in our country. So the media used to be for used for education purposes. Of course. Now, now we're struggling to just have people appreciate the fact that climate change is real, which is pretty crazy since the rest of the world is way past that awareness. Yeah, I was reading Rebecca Huntley's book, How to Talk About Climate Change in a Way That Makes a Difference, and she remarks that it is not a political issue in many different countries, whereas both in Canada and the U.S., it's based on political boundaries. If you are of a certain stripe, you believe the science. And of course, we know that the science isn't something to believe. It is, period. Yet it's been politicized, and she drew a line between Al Gore's Inconvenient Truth coming out and how that was used against the climate scientists by the fossil fuel industry to say, well, climate change, that's just, that's a left-wing thing. It's like, well, just because Al Gore was a Democrat doesn't mean climate change is a left-wing thing. He was presenting the science. The political party that he was part of is secondary, it's immaterial. So yeah, it was really interesting to just drive home that idea that it is not a politicized issue in many, many, many other nations, which is great that you've included so many different nations in the book so that we get that broader perspective. Thank you. Talking with Green Teachers is produced by Green Teacher, a nonprofit that has been enhancing environmental education since 1986. For only $32 a year, you can join our global network of passionate environmental educators, receive each issue of our quarterly magazine, and gain exclusive access to our vast archive of webinars and magazine-back issues. All proceeds go back into the organization to support our vision of helping each successive generation of young learners become more environmentally literate than the last. To learn more, visit greenteacher.com. She looks back and notices that her footsteps in the sand chart a course that is far from straight, a testament to the twists and turns of her journey so far. So you began writing the first book in 1996, so 25 years have passed. 
let's turn the clock back a quarter century. How did this journey begin? Well, I had spent 10 years before that in pioneering a field called the Healthy Communities Movement and working with major corporations on developing public-private partnerships to improve education, the environment, healthcare in the United States, and to engage the leaders at the top, particularly business leaders, to see that it was in their best interest to work together with the community to address the issues that were, they were being faced. So at the time, I was fascinated working in a Cleveland, Ohio, with the leaders of six different communities, business, government, education, community, and youth. And I was amazed that of all the issues that they were concerned about, the number one issue that they all cared about was young people. And I thought that was very, I mean, seniors, transportation, lack thereof, homelessness wasn't as big um, in Cleveland, but young people, I thought was, so that was really what motivated me to go for a walk on the beach that I had never been. I felt like that concern, that universal concern that people had for the young people in their community was really moving to me because I was a teacher. I cared about young people and I thought, what am I being called to do? And so initially my first book was really a gift to those working with young people. We work with the YMCA and other national nonprofits who work with young people and the curriculum that we use to develop to take each of the stories and apply them to language arts, community service, and social studies, and how do we bring these stories to life. And primarily our goal was to have teach empathy and to, have, to touch people's hearts with these stories, to create a sense of, if he could do it, I could do it. And so you have the very big stories like Dr. Muhammad Yunus and the, the Grameen Bank, and he just cared about the women that were um, impoverished, and he thought, what can I do? So that was the main message, what can I do as an individual, and what can we do together if we combine our resources? And the latest book? So this new book has taken 20 years to complete. I had a two-book deal from Random House <laughs> when I first started. And I really thought it was going to be finished. And I was always looking for a quiet place to finish writing. Once I started to work with the community in Martha's Vineyard, it wasn't, you know, I wrote the book there originally. But then once I started to work with the community and work with the teachers, it wasn't a quiet place anymore because everyone knew my phone number or knew who I was. So <laughs> I was always um, on a quest to find a quiet place to write. And what happened is every time I would find a quiet place to write, people would say, what do you do? And I told them and they say, oh, we need your help. So it, uh, I had the incredible opportunity of working alongside of people in places that I never would have learned from. Where you ended up then is quite different from where you thought you'd get from the outset. The place that I thought I was going to finish the book is Vieques, Puerto Rico. Right. And it was 68 years the Navy had been occupying Vieques, and they had just, through civil disobedience, they had just got the Navy to leave. And I arrived six months later. 
And so I stayed. They asked the mayor and the people there asked me to work with the community. I didn't speak Spanish. They didn't speak English. And so it was quite an interesting journey, but I learned about sustainability. I learned about climate change. I learned about, you know, 24 inches of rain in 24 hours. I lived it. And so in 2003, I went, wow, this is a big deal in these communities. So I'm a very curious person by nature. And so part of our training with the young people was to go and learn everything we could about this issue and what could be done so that they were prepared to be leaders of their community because that was, that was the goal. With the benefit of hindsight, would you go back and change anything? If I had known this 25 years ago, would I have done the same? No, definitely not. It's, it's been a, I, would, I can't believe that it's taking so long for people to wake up, but I just went to Las Vegas to a live show. I have a hard time admitting that I went to it, but I was really hungry to go to live music. And I was shocked at how unaware people are about climate change. Yeah. And I thought it, it really re-inspired me to say, you know, we need, it's about education. We need to get this to our children. The children of today are unprepared for what's coming. And so our hope is that this book and these stories will inspire more teachers and more children to get ready and to do whatever they can now to build a more just, equitable, and sustainable world. And that segues so perfectly to the discussion of hope. And I would challenge anyone to not feel hopeful after reading even just a few of the stories in the book. Every story is not only inspirational, but the fact that these are very real stories, many of them are recent stories, just brings it to the forefront. And it takes it out of that sort of abstract realm. And, you know, hope is a funny thing. And a lot has been written about hope. I mean, Barack Obama wrote a book about hope. Many people have written about hope with regards to environmental challenges. And it's always a bit of a tricky tightrope walk to find that balance between understanding the urgency and gravity of a lot of the environmental challenges that we face, but also keeping people hopeful. And we, we hear, of course, about climate and eco-anxiety. You're an educator by trade. Most of our listeners are educators. Do you have any advice on how educators can find that balance of, of telling the truth about the urgency, but not overwhelming young people? You know, I, my mentors and teachers have always taught me that I, it starts with me. So I find that I need to do whatever I can myself to uh, find that balance and right. come from that place when I share that with the young people. And so, you know, because I was in 60 different islands, living on islands for 20 years and <laughs> um, never really having a home. I mean, I was really the, the epitome of a stone soup traveler. <laughs> but during the pandemic, I had to stay put, which, you know, so one of the first things that I did was to plant a garden. And I come from an indigenous roots of my grandmother and grew up with gardening. And uh, gardening is just, you know, and I, I say gardening in a very, very small scale, but enough to have life around me. And then to always, I'm always, I always live on the ocean. So to be near nature, 
Yes. And to either walk on the beach or go for walks, whatever. So I think that we absolutely need to do whatever we can to be around the beauty of nature and to see things growing. So number one, that for me, and of course, all the other self-care things that one needs to do to take good care of, you know, my health. And, but I think that also, I mean, I, people ask you, what did you do during the pandemic? And I was like, I finished the book because I, you know, and, and it wasn't that I was oblivious to the pandemic, but it was just, I was working with all these young people all over the world, talking with them and interviewing them. And we were all going through the same thing at the same time. It was really interesting experience to be so connected and so felt feeling so much a part of community. And so I think that, you know, in my way of being, being in a community, being part of a community that's involved with doing something greater than ourselves um, is an insurance plan against, you know, overwhelm, depression, equals whatever word one wants to use. So, and I, so I think that working with the children to be sure that they ha have that sense of community and that they have a sense of being connected to others. So that's the purpose of, you know, the book and the companion curriculum that we're developing um, and the podcast so that children today can meet these kids because they're just ordinary folks, but they're not. And so I think creating that sense of connectedness to others that are passionately involved with this is an insurance policy against feeling the enormity of the challenges that we're facing. So one step, one action, every story in the book has a call to action. Yeah, I love that. And so then you can go on the website or you could go and look at our social media. You can see the videos about them. You can learn about, you know, what they're doing every day. And so we just had the world's largest book signing. And during it, we had a podcast with a young people from, I think, eight countries. And they had a stone soup challenge and challenging people. What can you do? A lot of them, particularly in other countries, are challenging people to plant trees. So that's a, that's a big one these days is to plant the trees. So in my lifestyle, planting a tree hasn't been possible, but planting a garden, planting herbs, things like that, all of that, anything green, plant it. And it's a measurable change that you can observe and see, and right. that's where the magic happens, of course. Hey, it's Ian. I'm just here to let you know about two of our newest books, Teaching Kids About Climate Change and Teaching Teens About Climate Change. Each one is kind of like an educator's toolbox with ready-to-use hands-on lessons focused on four core dimensions of climate change. Visit greenteacher.com to get your copies. We also have special rates available for bulk orders, and all proceeds go back into the nonprofit. Looking ahead, she notices something small, a sea turtle hatchling struggling to lift itself from a shallow depression in the sand. You mentioned in the book that up until now, and this is a direct quote, up until now, climate change and sustainability solutions aren't taught in our classrooms. And yes, we are seeing that shift. There are national standards, like in the United States, you have the next generation science standards, for example. What, you know, kind of the big question is why, and there are multiple factors behind this. I mean, we talk about the Hansen testimony in 1988 as what 
should have been a tipping point in public consciousness about climate change. And yet more than two decades went by and we kind of dra dragged our feet. I mean, what have been some of these, some of the biggest barriers to bringing this to the forefront of education? I've given a lot of thought to this and it does seem counterintuitive at times. You think I lived, worked in Hawaii for a while and you have a governor and a whole state that's committed to 100% renewable energy by 2030. And so you think, wow, that's awesome. Let's go help. Let's, and I did. But what's scary is that there's not enough STEM teachers, that, that the pay scale of teaching is so low in Hawaii that they can't even keep first level teachers because the cost of living is so high. So the, the fact that teachers have to choose between, you know, two jobs or not paying their bills is, you know, one of the big issues. And STEM teachers are sought out by the private sector. So if they, you know, are economically focused, they will get a job in the private sector. So the lack of teachers is, is the number one issue. And the lack of pay for great teachers is the subset of that. I think the other issue that's super important, and I think we underestimate the fact that because of the political divide in the United States, at least, <clears throat> the lack of investment in green and in the transfer transition from fossil fuel to renewable energy means that there's been a lot less resources available for businesses and people who have a good idea and who want to be involved with that. There's just not as much you know, investment of resources available. So what we found in, in Hawaii was that the government was attracting a lot of Asian companies from Singapore and Korea and Japan and so forth to develop startups. And so, but they went under because they couldn't hire enough young people that were trained in STEM because there weren't enough STEM teachers. So it's a skills gap. Yes. So we've spent some time working on that skills gap and we've come to realize that it's the guidance counselors that actually are the gatekeepers for these jobs that are good paying jobs. And whether it's for a one year certificate or a PhD, there are a lot of jobs out there, but our young people don't know about them. So we've built a whole online platform to help educate guidance departments about how they can prepare their young people for the jobs of, it's not even tomorrow, it's for today. So I think that there's several different groups. The business community, as of yet, hasn't taken a leadership role in connecting the dots with education. We've done, you know, for the last 25 years, the Institute's main focus has been on getting businesses to come and talk to the young people and provide field trips and internships so that young people particularly disadvantaged communities, young people of color can see what the jobs of today are. And we, we've done some pilot programs in different regional areas and the kids are just amazed that these jobs are out there. So I think that the business community needs to be challenged more and invited more. And the reason that isn't happening as much as there used to be a coordinator of public-private partnerships inside of schools community partnership person. And I was involved in helping with some of that. But with all the cutbacks in education, there isn't a person there. So it's up to each individual educator 
So there's the silo approach. Oh, yeah. And so what, what our work does, you know, through the Institute and through our training programs and through our educational tools is to build bridges between these different groups. And I think that, you know, the only, only, there's a few, I suppose, out of the pandemic is that more and more parents are more involved mm -hmm. and more and more parents want their kids to learn about climate change and sustainable education. And so we're finding more and more parents are, are getting more involved and use, they need some user-friendly tools, which is what we do. So there's, there's stop gaps, there's ways that we can build those bridges, but our goal is to not to try to wait for anyone. Right. That's, I think, the key message is to not wait for the government to ch make the changes because of all the politics that are out there. Not to, not to wait for the school system. Do whatever we can to support the schools, but the more people start to ask for this, the more it will be available. So a wake up is the first chapter title. Yeah, I mean, that makes me think of this term quarter life crisis, which in and of itself is essentially a failure of a major function of the education system to prepare people for the working world. I mean, if people get quote unquote culture shock simply by graduating into the adult working world within their own country, within their own culture, they're clearly not getting something that they need. So the fact that you are filling those gaps with those public-private partnerships and building those bridges to me, that's just such a crying need. And I, I would say the same, and this is generalizing, but the same is very much true in Canada because a lot of people, they get a great education or so they think, and then they get out into the quote unquote real world and they're like, wait, what? That can't happen. Well, there's no accountability. You know, our universities right. are, are, aren't accountable for how many young people get jobs, number one. Number mm -hmm. two, there's incentives for high school guidance departments to get people into the Ivy League schools that groom them for corporate jobs that don't exist anymore. Yeah. So there's financial incentives into our education system that are counterproductive to the fact that young people unilaterally, they all want to learn about sustainability. Unilaterally, young people mm. really care about what's going on. And that's you know why actually we've taken this you know approach to the platforms that we built and the companion curriculum and the lesson plans that we have is that our young people after coming to one of our week-long sustainability summits they wanted to get a, a job in building a better world and they didn't know where to go and they didn't know how to get there and so we've been doing all this remedial guidance for them and then we just learned about all these roadblocks along the way. And so the young people, the ones who actually designed our platforms and said, I think if we get the kids started, you know, in middle school or elementary, and here's how we can get them excited about science so that they don't dismiss that. Because unfortunately, more and more kids are being encouraged to go into the financial sectors and to how to make money. They think that that's where, you know, and so Wall Street it's got an influx of some of the best and the brightest of our young people. And we challenge Wall Street to invest in green and have these young people help them to rethink how they're investing in the transition to renewable energy, because that's what young people want. I mean, they need to pay their college loans. So that's the <laughs> yes. other half, half the battle. Yeah, that's a whole other <laughs> rabbit hole <laughs> that we could get into. Right. 
There's a lot of rabbit holes for sure. It's, it's, you know, either by design or by default, it's definitely counterproductive. Green Teacher's main office is located on the traditional territory of the Anishinaabek, Huron-Wendat, Haudenosaunee, and Mississauga peoples. This territory is covered by the Williams Treaty. It's no secret that many sea turtles are in trouble. As much as the traveler would like to let nature take its course, she feels compelled to help the turtle get back to level ground. Getting back to this idea of having everyday heroes, and that's a phrase that you use a lot in, in both of the books, is everyday heroes, people who are relatable. And certainly some of the names are recognizable. People familiar with showbiz in the U.S. will recognize names like Ed Begley Jr., for example. He's featured in one of your stories. A lot of gamers will be familiar with Hank Rogers of, of Tetris distribution fame. But for the most part, these are these quote-unquote everyday people. They don't necessarily come from an extraordinary lineage. They're ordinary people doing these extraordinary things. And how critical was it to make that a core tenant of the books? Well, when you think about the stone soup traveler and the stone soup journey, his it was a hungry traveler in the 16th century. And, you know, his approach was asking people to help, mm. to give him a, a bite to eat or a place to stay and no one had anything to share. And, you know, they all had their stories about how difficult things were. And so, you know, the whole premise of this fable, which has become an organizing principle for a lot of, not only in the US and a teaching tool, but globally, every place I travel, people have a, the equivalent of a stone soup story, which is that, you know, he gets, makes a feast for the village by everyone just pitching in something. And so I think that that's the message of our time is that everyone needs to pitch in. It's not up to anyone. We sit back and look and wait for someone to do it and it's not going to happen. So we really believe that using the innate curiosity of young people and the passion um, that they have and just ask them questions. When we start our programs, we say, you know, what is your dream for your life, for your community and for the world? And it's, we build all of our programs based upon that, each communities. And you find that universally these young people by and large care about the next generation. They care about young people. And so we grew our organization based on the font on Dr. King's Each One Teach One. Yes. So if you learn something or if you're exposed to something, you pass that along. You don't need a degree to do that. You just share what you know. And so it empowers you to learn, to teach something, to learn something and then to teach something. Our young people have grown into leaders because they were willing to reach back and share that whatever they learned with the next generation. And then they get strong enough to share it with their government leaders, which we introduce them to, and then the government and the business leaders. So they practice their public speaking skills with the younger generation. They practice their presentation, their way of their presence. They get over, it's much easier for young people to talk to younger people, they don't feel nervous. Mm. And so if they get enough practice, then they can talk to the leaders with the same clarity. So I don't know, I guess maybe 
my biggest training was being the oldest of 10. <laughs> so it's a survival mechanism, really. Everybody has to do their job on Saturday morning. Oh, yes. Hi there. You might recognize my voice from such podcasts as the one you're listening to right now. Speaking of podcasts, Green Teacher is involved in another one. It's called Earthy Chats, and you know what? How about I let my co-host, Jade Harvey Barrel, tell you the rest? Take it away, Jade. Thanks, Ian. Hello, all. Indeed, we'd love for you to join us for Earthy Chats, our new podcast where we've come together to spend time picking the brains of the brightest and best in environmental education. Like busy bees, we'll be cross-pollinating ideas across our range of interests and knowledge bases to give you the inside scoop on what's new, who's doing it, and how you can do it too. All of the experts featured on the show have resources available Canada-wide in the Outdoor Learning Store. That's Canada's non-profit outdoor resource store. You can check out the range of educator and student resources available at www.outdoorlearningstore.ca. So whether you're a teacher, educator, parent, or just a general nature geek, there'll be something for you to sink your teeth into. Did I cover everything there, Ian? Definitely. Thanks, Jade. So yeah, Earthy Chats. Check it out on your favorite podcast app. Yes, she will help the toddle, she's decided. It's only fair. She clasps it gently between her index finger and thumb. It's probably unfair to ask you to single out any one or two stories when you've been involved in so many and you've written about so many across the two books. But to end us off, is there one that you can leave us with that's particularly relevant to a youth in 2021, in today's world? Oh dear, you're right. It's a tough one. There's so many. They've all touched my heart so deeply. I think the one that has the most sweets and compelling message is Lily Platt in the Netherlands. She's 13 now. She's mm -hmm. been working with us for over a year. And, you know, she and her grandfather pick up trash. But using social media, she helps people to think about how much plastic that they buy every day and how the packaging of produce or whatever other product we're buying has to go someplace. Not that being angry isn't a good thing or shaming isn't a good thing for some who do that. She's more of an educator and more of, hey, let's do this together. Let's just pick up the trash. And I think that, you know, the plastic and the trash is one of the number one issues that we're dealing with, whether it's oh, no on land or ocean. And we have, you know, probably half a dozen stories in the book, what different people are doing in different countries with that. You know, Lily's someone that whenever she joins one of our Zoom calls, because we have this stone soup leader family that she deemed it, she always brings this hopefulness, this spirit, this, hey, let's do this. And that's really what it's all about. It is, and you're right, that civil disobedience is necessary, very necessary in some cases, but in some cases you just need to bring that hopeful attitude of working together and contributing all of the different ingredients to your community's stone soup 
so that you can create something wonderful, meaningful, and of course, above all, sustainable. There you go. Well, thank you so much, Marianne. Of course, we could have gone into so many rabbit holes and, and talked on and on and on, but it was really wonderful to virtually meet you and connect and it's been wonderful reading about the book i still have a few stories myself to get through and i will look forward to reading those in some quieter moments this summer and i wish you the best as you continue to spread the word about the wonderful work that you and your team are doing well thank you and we would invite any of your educators to join with us this fall to bring these stories and the book and the curriculum into your classroom so get in touch with us sounds good we will help spread the word Thank you, Ian. After placing the toto on level ground, the stone soup traveler steps back to observe the tiny being's first interactions with the ocean that will hopefully be its home for many years. The ocean is a big and scary place, maybe the most intimidating place on Earth. Opportunity awaits. Talking with Green Teachers is co-hosted by Ian Shanahan and me, Sofia Vargasnesi. Ian is the show's writer and editor. Logo design is by Devin Terrien. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts or iTunes to get instant access to each new episode. If you really like the show, give us a rating too. We can also be found wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for joining us in this episode. We'll chat again soon. You know, we were based on the East Coast. Yeah, or... Martha's Vineyard. Right. Uh, yeah, I've never actually been to Martha's Vineyard, but I've looked on seeing how beautiful it is and the wonderful reputation it has. Uh, it and Nantucket are both places that I would really like to travel to soon, once the borders open. <laughs>